a book one day and my whole life was changed. Turkey's only Nobel laureate Orhan Pamuk starts his book The New Life with these words. And many people have felt that way, be it the Bible or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> and that's what we will discuss today. How do books change us? Why should we read? Why pen is mightier than the sword? Let me start with the last question. Yes, the pen is mightier than the sword, especially a witty pen. Francis Bacon says the monuments of wit survive the monuments of power. The proof is the long life of the saying itself. The pen is mightier than the sword dates from the 19th century England, but its precedent, the word is mightier than the sword, is from 500 BC. Exactly. That's why some people, especially moralists and autocratic politicians, find reading very dangerous. Yes, and the free speech was banned throughout the ages. Similarly, reading was always feared in history, starting from ancient Greece. Socrates said that most people couldn't handle written text on their own because they would be confused and disoriented without the counsel of a wise man. How paternalistic! This moralistic approach continued a long time. Goethe's 18th century novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, the story of an unrequited love where the young man finally shot himself, was widely condemned for triggering a wave of copycat suicides on both sides of the Atlantic. Or Oscar Wilde's The Portrait of Dorian Gray, which was forbidden most of the 19th century for its decadence. Ironically, no high school child graduates without reading it today. It's part of the school curriculum nearly worldwide. Reading is indeed a risky activity. It takes you on a journey into the unknown. How can we read Master and Marguerite without wondering whether we have the power to destroy an authoritarian state and its pointless bureaucracy? Indeed, that might be the reason that the book was forbidden in Turkey until the 21st century. <laughs> the solidarity between the states brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> right. Reading gets us unprepared and offers an experience that's rarely under our control. That's like discovering new territories. It plays such an important role in our search for meaning. Don't you think the bookworms are the ones who don't fit in their communities and question its values? Isn't reading all about looking for something different, maybe different people than our families and friends? Maybe people like us? I was listening to Turkish author Elif Shafak on TEDx when she spoke of circles, the circles we are born into, such as country or class. Then she said if we remain in that cultural cocoon, our imagination shrinks and our humanity might diminish. Books are the antidote to that. Reading takes us to different places, times, and makes us friends with people who are different and yet like us. Yes, we read until we find allies and friends. Or people who are as miserable as we are. You think you are the only one suffering in the world and then you read about others. Yes, some people think reading is wasting your time because so many things are happening around. But on the contrary, it's a time saver. Because it gives us access to a wide range of feelings like remorse or events that could cost us long years in prison. You have the accumulation of knowledge of hundreds of years just in your lap. What I also like about literature is that quite a lot of it is about failures and fuck-ups. While society and mass media glorify success, many great novels are about people who simply mess up. 
your heroes, or rather your anti-heroes, make a deal with Satan, participate in Holocaust, conduct illegal abortions, or fall in love with an actor with a donkey said. <laughs> or do nothing whatsoever, like in Ivan Alexandrovich's Oblomov, which is the book I bought as present to my niece as soon as she was old enough to enjoy the beautiful character descriptions. Unlike quick lynches in social media, most great authors don't judge people. They make us understand the character or even feel a certain kinship and recognize the likeness with ourselves. So we stop seeing people as good or bad, but take into account their surroundings and the fact that they change. Literature tells us before real life in most cases, the most disliked person can turn out to be the savior of your life. Last but not least, good stories tell us that even our best intended moves can end up with a tragedy. One book's hero can be another's villain. George Orwell's 1984 pictures Julia as the sexually liberated revolutionary, the fiery lover of Winston, before the two sold each other under the chestnut tree. Inspired by this cult book, a Hungarian author wrote a sequel called 1985, in which Julia and Winston realize the revolution. But Julia, now a moralistic apparatchik, turns against Winston for his degenerate and corrupt ways. Taking characters out of their own books and imagining them in another context may not be a good idea. The same goes for chasing after the fictional characters or places in real life. For example, when I read Stefan Zweig's autobiography, The World of Yesterday, I was quite impressed by the coffee houses in Vienna. And when I visited the city, I made an effort to have coffee at the Central Cafe, where the author discussed the newest ideas with his friends for hours and checking out the newcomers to the cafe. They considered it home, where regulars sat all day reading papers, writing and receiving posts. But ask me what I encountered instead. A million tourists? Plastic tables? <laughs> A huge but almost empty coffee house, quite old, with cold marble tables, which I'm not fond of, and only a few tourists. Moreover, I was engrossed in a row with my boyfriend at the time, so it was far from the ambience I expected. At least the place still exists. Sometimes you go to a place that is immortalized in your mind due to a novel, and what you see is a multi-story car park and lots of ugly cafes. A friend who has read Midnight in Para, which talks about the elegance of that area in Istanbul at the turn of the century, said she was horrified when she found herself surrounded with cheap touristic shops around the Galata Tower. <laughs> our feelings about a place or even a book very much depend on our mood, no? Yes. I sometimes think that you need to be mentally ready to give a good book the attention it deserves. One of my favorite books is Durrell's Revolt of Aphrodite. I started this book and put it aside four times before I could eventually read it in full. <laughs> my new setup is very suitable for this. A hammock under the trees, cats and dogs silently and patiently waiting for me to finish the book. This daily activity of ours was my wild dream before I started to live in nature. 
In his book Walden, American author and philosopher Toro says nature and reading classics go together. Both enable people to better themselves. I couldn't agree more. I also think that we recreate a book at each reading, depending on our mood, age, and personal experience. We miss many meanings that the writer intended, but I'm also sure we attribute meanings to the text the writer himself never thought of. <laughs> no wonder most authors hate to watch their novels on screen. Forget about writers, even readers. I try never to watch the film because I do not want to forget the images I have in mind while reading the novel. <laughs> Can we say that one should never judge a book by its movie, no matter how beautiful images can be or how much technology is used? I don't like high-tech effects anyway. Yes, it's a pity that some people think it is the same. So many things, particularly the depth of characters, cannot be conveyed. And complex ideas are often cut out. Books are deep and multidimensional. Like we learn from friends, we learn from books. New words, new metaphors increase the stock of available reality. There is something you suddenly perceive out there, which you didn't perceive before. Tell me, are there writers you keep going back to? Oh yes, my recent favorite is a modern Turkish writer, Şule Gürbüz. I've read all her books so far and I'm eagerly waiting for the next one. Her writing has great depths. And you know my all-time favorite, the Ottoman Turkish satirist of 1920s, Refik Halit Karay. What about you? Martin Amis. I started reading him in the 1990s when he was the bad boy of English literature and he was in constant war with the establishment and the cliches of any kind. And I brave on even after he became a grumpy old man. And of course, you know my love for Dorothy Parker, whose book of short stories has just been translated to Turkish by a young translator. I'm so happy that she's liked by the younger generations. Yes, literary tastes sometimes change between generations, don't they? Having said that, our own tastes can also change. For example, don't you underline different places each time you read a book? I do, and when I look back, I cannot understand why I underlined some of the past lines. <laughs> Same here. Sometimes I'm amazed when I see what I underlined earlier. But surely those lines become parts of us, even though we pay attention to different ideas at a later stage. And sometimes I even forget that I have read a book and buy another copy of the same book. And do you finish all the books you have started? Yes, if I start, I do my best to finish it. But there are some books I cannot even start. <laughs> there is this Turkish writer who is translated to many languages and has fans all around the world. I have bought every one of this writer's books with the hope that one of them would entice me. But I've never been able to go beyond the first paragraph in any. I give a book 20 pages, and if I'm not enticed by them, I would usually just drop it. There are many books out there, and losing time over one that does not appeal to you is simply like being stuck in a bad relationship. <laughs> You're right to compare books to relationships. Maria Popova, the producer of online newsletter Brain Pickings, says this on reading. It's an unrepeatable feeling, better than a first kiss for it comes without anticipation or hope. It's a feeling often found between covers of a great book, the stillness between expectations, leaving you stunned and transformed. Beautiful. And you know what my biggest fear is? That I will not live long enough to read all the books I want to read. You probably will not, actually. There are many brilliant people out there who can write good books faster than we can read them. 
All we can do is to strive to read as much as we can and as widely. <laughs> If we could just take one book to a desert island, what would it be? Complete works of Bernard Shaw. That's cheating. Okay, I will just take his book of plays. And you? <laughs> okay, I would take Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time then. Look who is cheating now. It's seven volumes and 4,000 pages. <laughs> What did you expect? I may live in nature but still have responsibilities here and couldn't read that yet. It would be an ideal book for an island. And at least it's one novel. Have you read it, by the way? I have read Alain de Botton's How Proust Can Change Your Life and I've decided to save this outrageous writer and the long novel for an occasion when I want my life changed. <laughs> If you say so. In the meantime, I would advise our listeners not to wait to be stuck on an island or at some crossroads to read a life-changing book. In fact, follow Aigen's advice and pick up one today. 